Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do love you, and we are grateful for the way that you care for us, the way that you sustain us. And so, Father, for any of us that have gathered here today with a burden, God, with, with a request, with a need, with a struggle, where we're looking to you, where we're looking for strength, we're looking for resiliency, for perseverance, help us see once again your sustaining power, to rest in it, to trust in it, and to see the value of, of waiting, to see the value of being patient and relying upon you. Father, as we open your word, we pray that it would once again move our hearts and it would stir us to such a level, God, that we would leave here today changed and inspired to glorify you in every way possible. We thank you for the gift that it is to gather and to worship with the saints, to sing your praises and to hear your holy word. Let us have the vision to understand that this is more than just a part of our week, but that we are stepping into a greater story that you are creating and crafting for all human hearts to hear. Let us cherish this moment and entrust it to you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Ruth. So uh, just as a recap for what we have been uh, establishing to start the year of 2022, the theme for our year is the idea of renewal, a renewed life, living as God's renewed people. And we introduced this theme by first looking at Romans chapter 12. The book of Romans is going to serve as a primary guide for us throughout the year. Uh, but we started off in Romans 12 looking at those first two verses because it really helps introduce this concept of a renewed life, introducing this theme by highlighting at least three really kind of important characteristics of a renewed life. And when you work through those concepts in those first two verses, you see these themes of devotion and dis, uh, discernment and delight, right? That those are some of the key markers and characteristics of a renewed life. That if we truly want to be set apart from the world around us, if we don't want to conform to its patterns, then we really need to mark our lives with a devotion to Jesus, a discernment of his will, and delighting in the fact and in the trust that his will is good, pleasing, and perfect. All right, so we established that tone with Romans chapter 12, 1 through 2. And then what we wanted to do before we picked up with the beginning of the book of Romans was take some time to go back to an Old Testament story that gives us a picture of a renewed life. And that's what we started last week with the story of Naomi and Ruth. And, and really kind of what I want to do is I, I'll revisit a little bit of what we talked about last week and then we'll continue uh, with a summation of the last two chapters that we'll discuss this week. But when we introduce the story of Naomi and Ruth, you see it begins with tragedy. You see it starts with trial and hardship, a reference to a famine that is actually going to force the family of Elimelech to, to uproot and leave Bethlehem, leave the comforts of their home, and go to Moab. And it's there that they are, are looking for survival. They're looking for food. And as they make this major change, a greater tragedy awaits as both Elimelech and then Naomi's two sons pass away. And so you see this tragedy behold them, and it's this, this really uh, monumental kind of dramatic moment where then there's this discussion between Naomi and her daughters-in-law about who's going to go with her, and, and Orpah decides to stay in Moab. But Ruth demonstrates devotion, right? Says, no, where you go, I will go, and they decide to return to Bethlehem. When they return is when you hear Naomi respond to the women that gather around her, my life is bitter, I left full, but I return empty, and what we talked about last week is, is the way in which Naomi talks about this, she consistently points to God as being the author of her misfortune. 
And so the question we tried to wrestle with last week was, does God cause suffering? Right? And that's an important question that many of us need to wrestle with and ask. And, and part of what we were able to try to identify is that when you factor in the fact that we live in a broken world, that evil is at work, we never should arrive at a place where we believe God is the author of evil. Right? But that though we will encounter hardship, God is with us in the suffering and can redeem it for good. Right? And we see that on display in the story of Ruth and Naomi. And in particular, when you see this encounter between Ruth and Boaz, and he speaks so affirmingly of her, one of the things that he says is, I've heard of everything you've done for your mother-in-law. And that was the point that we tried to focus in on last week, is that trials and suffering and hardship is inevitable. It's going to be a part of life. The greater question is, how will you respond to it? Right, that what people thought about after considering Ruth's story was not all the tragedy, but the strength with which she had responded to the tragedy. We've talked about kind of common day examples in the story of Jane Marcheski and how she's overcome cancer and divorce and so many other hardships in her life. And that moment where she encouraged the world by saying, you can't let the bad things in life define you. Right? And that was kind of our, our call and our rallying cry last week to embrace the inevitability of hardship but to not let those things define us and really to encourage one another to better respond to those things. So we're gonna pick up, and what you can do if you have your Bible there, you can just kind of follow along. It's gonna pick back up towards the end of chapter two, and I'm gonna paraphrase chapter three and chapter four. You can kind of follow along, and then I'll, I'll zero in on some specific verses a little bit later in the message. So after Ruth and Boaz meet, and they have this first encounter, Boaz invites her to dinner, right, and invites her over and Obviously, you need to remind yourself that she was in a moment of great desperation. They were worried about their uh, sustainability, their health, their, their provision. And so uh, Boaz goes above and beyond, invites her to dinner, gives her her fill, right? She eats till she's full, then has leftovers that she's able to take. And then he sends her back out to the field to get even more, sends her back to Naomi with just such a tremendous amount of provision, to which Naomi replies, blessed is the man who took notice of you, right? This was an answer to prayer. And, and so as she's trying to get a better understanding of who it was that provided so many wonderful things to them, uh, uh, Ruth explains to Naomi, well, it was Boaz. And, and Naomi responds and explains to Ruth that Boaz is a relative and is actually a guardian redeemer, which is a very interesting phrase, an important part of this story. So let me pause on the story and explain guardian redeemer, right? So in, in the Judaic customs, uh, there were designated relatives within a, a family unit that would be entrusted or seen to be the guardian redeemers, and they had certain responsibilities. Here's a list of what they were responsible to do for other family members. They were responsible to avenge the death of murdered relatives. They were responsible, responsible to marry a childless widow of a deceased brother, which would be coming into play in this story, buying back family land that had been sold, buying back family members who had been sold as slaves, looking after the needy and helpless members of the family. So this is a pretty significant responsibility, and one of the things that really stands out to me when we give consideration to this part of the story is just the way with which families were valued. Right? Like you, you actually had a, a, a duty, a responsibility to care for those who had gone through hardship and struggle within your own family. And in a culture like ours, where a lot of times families are pulled apart and told to live on their own and deal with isolation and all these different things, it's such a great inspiration to look back on the text and see the lengths to which people were willing to go to care for 
their families. You had a guardian redeemer. Really, really powerful image. And so that's, that's the responsibility of Boaz. Ruth explains this, or Naomi explains this to Ruth and says, you should continue to work in his fields because you could be harmed in another. And so that becomes the rhythm for their lives. And we don't know exactly how long this rhythm is maintained, but eventually it arrives at a place where Naomi and Ruth are talking further and Naomi expresses a need for a long-term answer. We can't keep doing this. At some point, you need to have a place to live, to be cared for. And so she gives some instructions to Ruth, some pretty interesting instructions on what to do to approach Boaz that night, uh, essentially to go into his, his bedroom, his bedchamber at the end of the day, to lay at the foot of his bed, and to ask him to cover her with his garment, which was a, a, a way to ask for marriage, so to speak. Now, when you study this part of the text, I will tell you that there are some, some innuendos here that might imply sexual behavior and advances and all those things that can make it really kind of confusing for us to read where we're like, what is going on here exactly? And what I don't want you to lose sight of is that when you read through chapter 3, if you wanted to look at verse 11, I think it says, Boaz actually refers to Ruth as a woman of noble character. And so part of what I want us to not lose sight on is that this was honoring the noble character that Ruth had already established. Nothing that she was doing was seen to be egregious or inappropriate. Like this was uh, maybe a custom that we're unfamiliar with, but one that uh, secured and maintained her own nobility and integrity as she was seeking to find a long-term answer and a husband to care for her. And, and so Boaz acknowledges that, affirms that, and then sends her on her way and says, I, there's another relative that's going to have this right before me. So let me take up the matter with him. And so Ruth goes back. She reports to Naomi. Naomi says, the matter will be settled quickly. So then the, the story takes us to that discussion where Boaz gathers the elders of the town. He meets with the other relative, and they begin to have this conversation and and, and the responsibilities of being these guardian redeemers. And so Boaz asked this relative if he is interested in securing the land of Elimelech. And the relative says, absolutely, sure. And then Boaz gives the fine print. And he says, well, that also means you got to marry Ruth. And the relative is like, eh, you know, maybe not. And so he, he decides to decline the, off, the offer. And so Boaz then, in the presence of the elders, says, all right, I, I will do this. I will secure the land, and I will take Ruth as my wife. And then they do this really interesting thing where they like trade sandals. I guess that's what you did to secure arrangements back then and negotiate. I feel like we should bring that back somehow in our society, you know, but either way, it's really odd cultural practice, but they secure it in the presence of everyone else. And then as the story concludes, you see this description where Boaz takes Ruth as his wife. She conceives and she gives birth to a son. And, and then there's delight, right? There's celebration. After all this devotion that was expressed to one another, discernment of how they were going to live. The story ends with delight. In particular, uh, as the women gather around Naomi as she holds her grandson and they celebrate her and they give praise to God for her, saying, you have now been given a guardian redeemer who will renew you and sustain you in your old age. They celebrate Ruth, right? She's been better to you than seven sons. And then you get that final description that this this child that Ruth had was named Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David, in, in the genealogy to David, which is likely why it ended up being canonized into Scripture because of its connection to David, as well as all the details of the story that speak to God's provision. 
Right? And so it's a really beautiful story. And I want to make sure that you take that last scene. That's where we're going to focus most of our attention together today as we reflect upon the importance of delight as God's renewed people. I want you to think about that last scene and just how beautiful it really is. Like, think about Naomi. Think about all that she had been through. Having to, to run from her own home, her own family, because of the threat of a famine. Having to live as a foreigner in a strange land, only to lose her husband and her two sons. Imagine her desperation upon her return when she confesses to those that she knows that her life is bitter and empty. Imagine the weight of concern because of the uncertainty of, of how would they even be able to provide for themselves? How would they be protected? How would they eat? Imagine that. And it all ends at this moment with a grandmother holding her grandson. And all those questions and fears being alleviated and answered. What a beautiful picture. Right? If you just think about the story from beginning to end, one that begins with famine and hardship and ends with a grandmother holding her grandson and the joy of that moment, it's a beautiful picture of renewal. So I want you to really understand the weight of it and the beauty of it. And then I want to ask you a question. If you could paint your final scene of your life and your story, what would it look like? And maybe it's not the end of your life. Maybe it's whatever season you're in. But if you try to imagine the resolution, this final picture what would you see? What would you envision? And as you imagine that final scene of your life, I've got three important questions that I want you to ask yourself as you try to picture it. What that day would be like, those final moments. What would you be able to celebrate? What delight would you be able to have? I have some questions for you as you think about it. The first is this. When you imagine those final moments, that final scene in your story, is it a noble picture? Is it a God-honoring picture or a self-seeking one? I want you to really evaluate it. Is it one that's colored more with your own personal ambitions, your own personal dreams, or one that is submitting to the good, pleasing, perfect will of God? What kind of picture is it? And then secondly, I want you to ask yourself, what are you doing right now to pursue it? What steps are you taking? Are you being distracted by other things in life? Have you gotten off course? Are you discouraged by other challenges? Like, what are you doing to actually pursue what God has possibly laid on your heart and planned for you? And then the third question is, as you imagine that picture, if it is God-honoring, even if it is something you're pursuing, have you entrusted it to him? Right, are you holding it tightly as if you're the one that's in control and you got to make sure it comes to fruition? Or do you hold it loosely, open-handed before your creator? Trusting that no matter what happens, it should be in accordance to his will and not yours. Knowing that it is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What is that picture for you? See, I think the more we can wrestle with those questions and try to come before the Lord with that open-handed trust and his good, pleasing, and perfect will, the more we're going to position ourselves to experience the delight that he desires for his people. We're going to experience the renewal that comes with trusting in him. And that's the delight that you see at the close of the story of Naomi and Ruth. Right? And there's, there's an element to this 
this final scene that also was really captivating and inspiring to me. And I want to want to read this verse for us again. If you want to follow along, this comes from chapter 4, starting in verses 14 and 15. Here's how it reads, this, this final picture. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. So what stood out to me on this final scene is the women who are gathering around Naomi and celebrating her, praising God with her. And what struck me is the joy that they shared with Naomi. Right, that one of the things I want us to be mindful of is that to live a renewed life, to live as renewed live as God's renewed people is not just delighting in our own joys, but delighting in the joys of others. And that is a beautiful thing to behold, right? And it sounds kind of obvious, right? It sounds kind of simple. Well, of course, you should celebrate when good things happen to other people, but do you? Like, are you able to truly celebrate the good fortunes and the joys of others? Do you delight with people when you see God move in their lives? I think we want to say yes, and we know we should say yes, but I think if we really boil it down and do some introspection this morning, there are some challenges, there are some things that can inhibit that and create obstacles to us actually being able to delight with others. And I want us to wrestle with what those obstacles could be so that we can try to overcome them and guard against them, right, so that we truly could delight with other people as they go through their own personal good fortune and joy. Right? And so when you think about some of the things that can prevent us from doing that, right? when you think about those seasons that you have, or maybe it's a little bit more difficult, or those particular moments, or maybe it's certain people right, that it's just harder for you to enjoy and celebrate with, what are the, the causes? Now, I've got a couple of things that I would suggest to us this morning. Uh, the first one is, is just kind of maybe a, a tone setter to this conversation, which is really sometimes the reason we struggle to delight in the joys of others is because of just ignorance. And what I, what I mean by that is that we don't even just, we don't even know what's going on in the lives of others, right? We're just unaware. It's a lack of a, an awareness. It's an ignorance that we have. We don't know what's going on in their lives. We don't know about the things that God is doing. And part of what that reveals in us is that sometimes the reason we fail to recognize what God is doing in other people's lives is because we can create a mindset that is more me-oriented than people-oriented. Right? And so renewed people need to look beyond themselves. Right? It's setting aside this, this self-absorbed, selfish ambition sort of life and genuinely caring for and longing to know about what is going on in the lives of others. Right? That's the, the call towards this radical and unyielding love for the neighbor that we talk about time and time again. It's to love God and love others. There's got to be a sincere interest to understand who other people are, what their stories are, what they're facing, what challenges they're overcoming so that you can see when God is faithful. A lot of times we can narrow our focus to make it just about us and just about our world. And so one of the reasons we fail to celebrate the joys of others is because we become more me-oriented than people-oriented. It's out of ignorance. And so as God's renewed people, strive beyond that. Get to know people's stories. Ask about what God is doing in their lives and then genuinely celebrate with them. Now, the reality is, is that even if you move beyond a me-oriented mindset and into a people-oriented mindset, it's not that easy still. 
right? Because what will happen inevitably at some point or another is that even when you see the good fortune in other people's lives, you're going to experience that good old-fashioned impulse that is innate in every human heart, which is envy, right? We've all had it. Jealousy, right? This, this impulse that, that really creates an uh, obstacle to truly celebrate and delight with others, Let's, let's think about the impact of envy. This is really where I want us to focus our, our challenge today, or at least in terms of identifying what it is that can prevent us from celebrating with others. Came across an article that was written by Juliana Brainis, uh, who wrote for a good, uh, Greater Good magazine at ba- Berkeley University in 2013. And she's writing about envy, and here's how she describes it. She says, envy is a state of desiring something that someone else possesses. It's a vicious emotion that can crush self-esteem, inspire efforts to undermine other successes, or even cause people to lash out violently. And the reason I liked that definition is because I think most of us understand the, the premise of what it means to envy, to covet what somebody else has, to desire what somebody else possesses. But what her description offers is kind of the, the fruit of envy, right? That it can, it can crush our self-esteem. It can inspire uh, motivations or desires to undermine other people's successes. It can even cause us to lash out violently towards others. It's a reminder that envy can be very destructive, right? And and part of what was really interesting as I began to research a little bit further on envy, a lot of the articles and a lot of the data and stories about it today seems to suggest how much of it has increased and become increasingly problematic because of social media, right? That, That really what ignites these, these envious emotions and thoughts and desires is comparison. And social media is one giant arena that is filled with comparisons. And I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hands, but just think about how many times you've engaged in some form of social media and had the thought, I can't believe they have that and I don't. Or just that, that twinge of envy, right, that just hits because of all these environments that we now find ourselves in where we compare what other people have that we don't. And it creates these emotions towards envy. Now, the reason we need to be mindful of that is because of what envy can lead to, right? Because when envy begins to take up residence in our hearts, it ultimately creates resentment. Now, resentment can find its way into your life for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes we become resentful because of how other people have hurt us or wounded us or harmed us or whatever it is, but envy is absolutely a source of resentment as well. Spend enough time envying and desiring and coveting what other people have and not getting it, then eventually you just become resentful to what others have, to what you don't. The better job, the better body, the better success, the better whatever. And all of a sudden, you become resentful. And resentful is much more concerning. Came across another article in Psychology Today that was written in 2017 by a man by the name of Robert Enright. And he describes uh, resentment in this way. He says, resentment can lead to unhappiness, continual irritability, psychological compromise, including excessive anxiety and depression. Resentment can become a part of your identity, a part of who you are as a person, And at this point, you move from showing resentful behavior to being a resentful person, right? And so you think about the impact that envy and resentment can have on you. It actually can become who you are. And so maybe that's a question we need to always be checking in with ourselves on is how do you feel or how do others see you? you, Are you seen 
um, by others or by yourself as a resentful person or a delightful one. Right? Because the renewed life delights. The envious, well, it, it resents. And so which one better colors your relationships right now? I want you to think about if you've had those moments of envy, if you've had those moments of resentment, and give some careful consideration as to why and, and what to do about it, right? That if you have those moments or those people or those situations in your life, begin to acknowledge those things, recognize them, and then pray that God would remove that envy and resentment and replace a spirit of delight. And I would encourage you to do that because it's not just articles in Psychology Today or Berkeley's Magazine that talks about the, the uh, unintended or negative consequences of that sort of life. Uh, scripture's filled with it. All right, let me review a couple of passages with us this morning about the warnings towards envy. Let me start with 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3. We have them on the screens. You don't have to follow along. You can just read up on the screens. It says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? All right, so the whole concept of this call to living a renewed life that we've talked about for the last several weeks is to break free from the patterns of the world and to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what we need to remember is a definitive pattern of the world is envy, jealousy. The more that's a part of your life, the more you're living as a worldly creature, not a heavenly one. James builds on this idea in the book of, of his letter in the third chapter where he describes two different types of wisdom, an earthly wisdom and a heavenly wisdom. I love the way he describes this. In James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, he says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. For such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And what a powerful description, right? If you are harboring bitter envy in your heart, then you are living in a world that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It is a cause of disorder and every sort of evil. And that, that is a strong description of just how damaging envy can really become. It is an earthly and worldly wisdom, right? The heavenly wisdom is something far better, something far greater. It's pure Right, it's sincere, it's full of mercy. One of the descriptions I love there in describing the heavenly wisdom is that it is, it is peaceful. And then this, this call that peacemakers, right, they live by this righteousness and this call towards peace. And, and that makes sense because if you think about those moments where envy begins to settle into your heart, you know what it does? It creates a restlessness, right? Like a need to either better achieve or overcome or diminish somebody else's successes or whatever it is, but it, it causes this stirring, this restlessness, and it's not peaceful, which is why Proverbs 14 verse 30 says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots 
the bones. You can see this time and time again. It is not the way of the renewed life. Right? If we're called to, to love God and love others, and you think about how that love is described in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, it says, love is kind. It does not envy. So pure and simple, the renewed life has no place for envy. Right? And the more we struggle with those emotions, the more it's going to lead towards an inability and an obstacle to delight, not just in our own joys, but the joys of others. And so we need to evaluate what role is it playing in our lives. Now, I want to actually dig a little bit deeper. I want to go one more layer in this conversation for a second and find the source of that envy. Right, where does it really begin to originate? Where does it really begin to, to, to be um, bred and to be fostered and cultivated? And if I were to submit at least one potential source for our envy, I would say it's insecurity. Right? If you think about insecurity and how you would define it, I, I came across an article on WebMD that actually dedicates a whole page to insecurities and, and the challenges of them. Let me give you a little bit of a description. It says, insecurity is a feeling of inadequacy and uncertainty. It produces anxiety about your goals, relationships, and your ability to handle situations. Now, we know that insecurities are common for all of us, and a lot of things can spark those. could be a trauma that you've overcome, a, a difficult environment that you've had to endure, be that at home or at school or a workplace. Right? There are all these different things that are going to breed those emotions and feelings of inadequacy or uncertainty. And so sometimes our insecurities are relationship-related, they're job-related, they're their body image related, like we have all these different types of insecurities that are driven by those environments, and we, we begin to wrestle with them. And there are a lot of times uh, they're caused by lower self-esteem, a desire for perfectionism or isolation, right? There are all these things that can create this insecurity. And so here's the point. The reason I try to pinpoint that layer is because if I'm wrestling with my own feelings of inadequacy, my own um, anxiety about uncertainty in my own life, my own purpose, my own call, then the more it's going to be very difficult for me to celebrate those same things in others. Right? The, the more I'm going to be likely to be envious of what I see others get because I feel like I don't have it or I'm inadequate or my future's uncertain. And so if we really want to dig deep to heart level, Right, that it's more than just obeying some command that says doesn't envy. It's really looking within our own heart and saying, why do I have this emotion? What am I insecure about? What, what inadequacy do I feel? What uncertainty do I feel? And wrestling with it there, and the more we can solve that, then the more we're going to be able to position ourselves to delight, not just in ourselves and what God's doing in our lives, but what he's doing in the lives of others. See, there's a benefit to, to living this renewed life and delighting and others, right? If you were to go back through those passages, you could just pick the opposite, right? That, that it would create maturity. It's, it's going to create a certain uh, wisdom that you need for life. It's going to create a life of peace, a life of joy, a life of love. One of the things that I would say that it does, that if we can overcome the obstacles of in, insecurity and envy and resentment and all those emotions that often plague our hearts, is that what it's going to do for us is create stronger relationships. 
Uh, there's going to be this genuine love for one another that eliminates the need for comparison or competition or coveting desires, right? It's going to be a genuine strength to our relationship. And it's going to be so beautiful and so powerful because it brings us into a front row seat to see what God is doing in the lives of others. And that is what makes the end of chapter 4 so remarkable. These women coming together and celebrating with Naomi, delighting in her joys, celebrating what God had done for her, taking her from famine and grief and loss and now giving her a guardian redeemer. I want to make sure we understand the significance of that moment. Not only is it pretty remarkable that they're able to do that, that their hearts are in that position, but what is the object of their praise? What is the object of their celebration? Well, if you go back and you read that section, part of what they're celebrating is that God has given you a guardian redeemer who will renew you and sustain you. Now, it'd be easy to get confused at this point of the text because Boaz was previously referred to as the guardian redeemer. But what is actually being referred to here by these women is not Boaz, but the boy, the newborn son, because he is now Naomi's closest relative who would have those responsibilities and those duties to care for Naomi and Ruth, as we described earlier. He is her guardian redeemer. So what a beautiful picture, right? That God walked with her through all of those struggles and all those challenges, all of her brokenness and pain, and said, I'm going to redeem you by sending a son. And the parallel to the gospel is pretty clear. See, I don't know what burdens you have. I don't know what concerns or struggles you bring into this room today. But part of what I want you to hear is that God looks upon you in your brokenness, looks upon you in your feelings of inadequacy, looks upon you in the uncertainties, and he says, I will redeem you by sending a son. And we have a chance to reflect upon this story and been taken to the heart of the gospel. Right? And what cures that insecurity, what, what reaches us so deeply on that heart level when we really reflect upon what God has done is his ability to sustain us by sending his son. Right? Psalm 55 verse 22 says it so beautifully. It says, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. Right, to be sustained means to be upheld, to be supported, to carry the weight. When you see that the righteous will never be shaken, the word shaken there means great insecurities. And so what that psalm is saying is that the Lord will eliminate your greatest feelings of inadequacy, your greatest questions of unknown. He eliminates those insecurities. So all your cares you can throw upon him and know that he will sustain you. And so when you look at the story of Ruth and Naomi, you see an age-old truth. Will you have to walk through the valleys of shadow of death? Will you have to face trial and trouble and hardship? Will you have to face uncertainties and the unknowns? Will you deal with grief and loss? Will you have to suffer? 
that you have a good shepherd who walks with you in the valleys. You have a savior who tells you, yes, in this world you'll have many troubles, but take heart for I've overcome the world. You have a king who tells you, don't worry about tomorrow. Seek first my kingdom today. You have a Jesus who wept and understands the pain of grief and loss. And you have one who took on your sins, took on your iniquities, and suffered on the cross. And by his wounds, we are healed. We have a rider on a great white horse whose name is faithful and true and will return one day and eliminate all sorrow and suffering and crying and pain. And it's because of that Jesus that you and I can gather here as God's renewed people and delight in what he's doing in our lives and in the lives of each other and declare to one another our God is good because he sustains us. You have nothing to fear no reason to feel inadequate or forgotten or unseen or unloved. No need to question the future it is written. Our God sustains us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we pray that now more than ever, God, we would trust in your sustaining power. God, we would see the fullness of your plan, the fullness of your love. And we would take great comfort, take great joy, Father, that we would find the, the strength to break free from the patterns of the world, overcome the impulses of envy and resentment and insecurity, and to celebrate what you have done for us through Jesus that we would celebrate what you're doing in the lives of others, God, that we can take heart and understand that you see us in our broken state, you walk with us in the valleys, and you redeem us by sending your son. We thank you, God, that you sustain us. We thank you, God, that you save us. And we worship you. And we offer our lives to you, both today, tomorrow, and forevermore. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.